The end of June marked the anniversary of the arrival of the Windrush generation in the UK and sparked renewed conversations about the UK's hostile environment. It is inhumane and cruel for so many of that Windrush generation to have suffered so long. We were invited to come to this country and you can't invite people and then when they've done their job, you chase them back home. It's been reported that UK immigration policies have stopped migrants from getting the healthcare they need during the COVID-19 pandemic, despite a government exemption from immigration checks and fees. A man who had coronavirus symptoms, he didn't call an ambulance and he unfortunately died at home. A patient on a ventilator in intensive care was asked to prove that he's eligible for free healthcare. Just this week, MPs passed a new immigration bill, which ends free movement to the UK and introduces a point-based system instead. A system that works in the interests of the British people, allowing us to attract the very best talent from right around the globe. They have to stop talking about people only as economic contributors and talk about people as people. We need to move away from this very dehumanising language, I think. So. How has the hostile environment affected people, particularly during the COVID-19 pandemic? Have migrants been hit harder by the virus? And what does the new immigration bill mean for migrant communities in the UK? We're back for a new series of the Weekly Economics podcast, this week looking at migration and coronavirus. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, recording this podcast from my house. Still, stay with us. So this week, we're joined down the line by Zoe Gardner, Policy Advisor at the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants and Akram Salhab, Advocacy and Campaigns Manager at Migrants Organise. Hi, both. Hi there. Hi. Thanks so much for being with us. So if you're happy, we'll dive in with the big questions. So first of all, over to you, Zoe. What is the hostile environment for listeners who are not aware of it and how does it affect migrants in the UK? Uh, well, big one, yeah. Um, the hostile environment is sort of a collection of policies around immigration enforcement in the UK. And they've been developed over the past sort of 15 years or so. But what they're intended to do is just to make life so absolutely miserable for anybody who is unable to easily prove their immigration status in the UK that ideally, you know, they'll just disappear somehow. And so that involves a process of outsourcing border checks and immigration control to lots of different parts of our society so that people are unable to access the things they need, like housing, healthcare, work, all of these things, bank accounts. At all of these points in society, we now introduce border checks, which means that if you can't prove your status, you can't access them. So landlords have to do border checks. Banks have to do border checks. Employers have to do border checks. And it results, as I'm sure any listener can sort of see how it would happen inevitably, both in a really awful experience for the people caught up in it, but also in discrimination and racism across all sort of facets of our society. And there's plenty of evidence that that's happening. Hmm. And Akram, how does the hostile environment policies as laid out by Zoe, how do they show up in the work that you do with Migrants Organise? Uh, well, I, I think when we talk about the hostile environment policies, there are different ways in which we can try and understand why the government has introduced them. There's an economic rationale for them. You know, if we look at the history of migration into Britain, it's often been guided by the economic interests of Britain at a certain time, importing labor at one stage, then during recessions, not wanting to deal with the human beings who are treated only in terms of the labor that they can provide. 
So we've often found that the British economy has been guided by economic rationale for the way the migration system is established. And I don't think that's any different around the hostile environment. But in, in the work that we do, I think it's really important to understand how the hostile environment leads to a denial of voice and the ability of individuals to organize politically. And if you think about the fact that there are up to and including a million people who are undocumented and around 300,000 people that are on no recourse to public funds, what we're talking about is that a very large section of society can't get the basic needs, you know, whether that's renting, whether that's getting a job, whether that's accessing healthcare. At the same time, their ability to advocate and fight for those rights is diminished by the fact that they're under this regime of fear. And that's, a, for me, the central organizing principle of the hostile environment, making people so fearful that they won't come forward and even share their stories. And that's the reason why so much of the hostile environment came into being, was established, was put into place, and existed for many years before, quote-unquote, the Windrush scandal shattered the public silence around it. But if you went to enter any migrant community and spoke to anyone who knew people or worked with people or who was undocumented, they knew full well what was happening. And there's a thousand Windrush happening every day in this country today, but the ability to articulate it, to speak about it, to work on it publicly becomes much more difficult if someone is afraid constantly of being arrested or constantly being put in immigration detention or deported. So I think it's the political aspect of it which is most damaging to the ability to fight against it. And that's the work we do is aimed at organizing, you know, migrants organize, aimed at organizing against it. Mm, that's really interesting. I mean, we've had lots of guests on the podcast talk about the hostile environment, but never framed through that particular lens. So thank you for bringing that in. I think that element of collective action, of course, <laughs> seems like quite a simple thing to realize that, of course, that is not an unintended consequence of the hostile environment policies, but a really key one for us to focus on. Let's talk specifics for a second. So focusing on the effects of the hostile environment on migrants, particularly in this time during the pandemic, we've heard a lot about this immigration surcharge for migrants who are trying to access the NHS. Zoe, could you explain for us what that is? Okay, it gets a little bit technical. I'll try to be as clear as possible. So, okay, I'll jargon bust you if necessary. Yes, do feel free to jump in and be like, what on earth is that? Um, <laughs> yeah, so basically the immigration health surcharge is one of these things that's been irritatingly sort of misrepresented in the press by people who don't fully understand. It's not really a charge for accessing the NHS. And I think that that's really important because there's a lot of debate to be had, maybe, shall we say, about whether people should be able to come in to the country and access, you know, all the welfare state that we have in this country on day one, even if they're coming into work jobs and will be paying in tax and so on. There's a question to be asked around that. But what this immigration health surcharge does is it doesn't ask the question of, oh, do you need to access the NHS? In that case, you need to pay X amount. It's just an additional tax that we place on migrant workers coming into the country, or all migrants, in fact, coming in on visas to the country. They have to pay per person per year, currently £400, but going up to £624 per person per year on the sort of excuse that they could access the NHS and therefore they have to pay in advance. So it's just an additional charge. And, you know, we don't charge an additional, you know, international police surcharge, do we? But people can obviously access, you know, the services of the police 
from day one of entering the country as well. So it's just a use of the feeling that there is around the NHS in this country to justify charging migrants through the nose an additional tax on top of, you know, the vast visa fees that they pay, the tax that they obviously pay once they're in this country that we all do. It's just an extra charge. And obviously, recently, we've seen people understanding that even migrants who come to work in the NHS and come to care for our elderly relatives and come to, you know, keep this country going throughout a health crisis are being charged this completely arbitrary additional amount just to come into the country, supposedly on the basis that this is supporting the NHS. And obviously, some of the hypocrisy involved in that has been exposed. But unfortunately, the U-turn that the government's been forced into is completely insufficient because it's only going to apply for the time being. So the U-turn is the exemption from the surcharge for migrants who are getting treatment for COVID-19? Uh, no, who are coming in to work in the NHS or in the care sector. Okay, okay. Yeah. And those people, because of that sort of hypocrisy that was pointed out, people who are working as doctors won't have to pay in the future, supposedly, it has been announced, but it has not been put into any legislation. And a proposed amendment to the immigration bill yesterday that would have put it onto a statutory footing, put it into law, was rejected by the government. So, you know, it's been announced. But in theory, doctors, nurses and care workers will not have to pay this in future. In practice, that means that people who come in and clean our hospitals or do you know any other vital job in our economy are still being charged this this absolutely arbitrary double tax okay so there's that exemption in place akram is there also an exemption in place for migrants who are getting treatment for covid-19 or only if they're migrants who are getting treatment for covid-19 who are also working in certain jobs for the nhs so the hostile environment in the nhs has three centerpiece policies One is the surcharge, which we just discussed, for which there's an exemption if you're a quote-unquote key worker, an NHS worker, and a migrant. And there's two more policies. One is data sharing, which, as Zoe was suggesting, you get technical very quickly when you start describing, but it's essentially data sharing between the home office and the NHS, sharing a patient's data from the NHS, which is then used for immigration enforcement. And that's gone through different iterations and changes. And then the exemption that applies to charging is part of the exemption that applies to migrants called overseas visitors in the policy. It applies to migrants or anyone who has a communicable disease. So the charging regulations say that anyone with a communicable disease and list those communicable diseases will not be charged if they come forward with that disease in order to protect public health. So can I just jump in to clarify they will be charged still the international health surcharge that I discussed before. Some migrants are chargeable for their NHS care on top of that charge that they've already paid that I discussed before. So people with communicable diseases, as Akram mentions, and COVID is included in these, are technically exempt from that additional charge, which is yet another one. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> this is why it gets complex, because it's draconian. <laughs> no, I think I, I understand. And obviously it's deliberately complex, but everyone pays this base rate. Some people pay more. There are some people who don't have to pay that additional tax on top of what they already have to pay if they have certain diseases, of which COVID is one. And then there is another piece of legislation which stipulates that people who are so-called key workers are exempt from that base tax. 
Yeah, and I think it's really illustrative of the whole hostile environment, this sort of quagmire that you get into so quickly of like, yeah, there's this exception for this group and there's this group that might potentially get some future exemption from another thing and there's this charge, but then there's another charge. And actually is this piecemeal approach that where people are so easily falling through the gaps and getting into terrible situations of difficulty because the government refuses to have a blanket policy that is actually just fair and safe for everyone. And they could do that very easily. Mm. So in terms of your experience, Akram, with Migrants Organised, how do all these kind of complexities around the NHS impact migrants being willing and able to use the service? So we've had increasingly amongst our membership, a very large number of people who can't get the care that they need as a result of these policies. As I said before, the key driver of this is fear, either fear that their data will be shared or fear that they won't be able to pay any bills or knowing that they are quote-unquote chargeable and therefore not coming forward to get the care they need. So this has been something that's been developing over the past few years. It affects people in a variety of ways. So when we talk about the exemption, the exemption doesn't exist if you go and get a test and then it turns out not to be a communicable disease, it's still chargeable. So you might not go get a test in those circumstances. Or you might go and then you'll be charged, but you'll know that if you go and then are charged, then that will affect your visa application. So you'd be so afraid that you won't present to a hospital in the first place. So when you start thinking through and having worked with hundreds of people on their immigration cases in attempting to access healthcare, you find that there's a variety of extremely complex ways in which the policy creates these barriers to accessing healthcare, practical barriers. You simply don't get the care you need because you can't afford it, or these fear-induced reluctance of people to come forward. And what we found in the piece of research we did launched a couple of weeks ago is that all of these dynamics are exacerbated considerably by the coronavirus crisis. So Again, and we've been making this argument for a while, the exemption uh, around COVID-19 as the exemption around TB and other diseases simply doesn't work. People don't get the interpretation services they need. They can't call 111 because they can't explain to them they need translation services. They're not being provided. And the, the way that these different policies interact ends up being quite complicated. Because of the way that that policy is intended to be implemented, it gives a very broad range of room for interpretation. So lots of people have had healthcare workers not knowing what they're doing, misapplying the policy. And I think all of these accidents and exemptions, as though we were saying, are part and parcel of what they hope to achieve. They don't want people coming forward to getting care and the exemptions as a result don't work. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you for explaining a very complex thing. Zoe, I was wondering if you could just, while we're wrapping up the section on the NHS, just talk a little bit about this data sharing piece specifically and and why that is such a problem and how it works, really. Well, it's one of the most sort of pernicious, well, I mean, I could say that about every single element of the hostile environment. I think whenever I'm asked about it, I'm like, yes, this is one of the worst things because it's all so bad. But this is a really, really terrible process, basically because your data isn't safe as a migrant. You don't know and you don't have any control and don't have any chance to give your consent to how your data is shared when you access public services, including healthcare, which means that the NHS routinely shares patient data with the home office, and then people get targeted by immigration enforcement off the back of that information. And at the end of the day, if that's the fundamental like barrier for 
anybody, whether they could maybe afford to pay or they maybe know about the exemption or whatever, they simply won't access any services whatsoever for fear of being targeted by enforcement, facing detention and deportation. And that goes for all public services. This happens with the police as well. We've seen the victims of crime, terrible crimes, come forward, report the crime that's been done to them, and then get themselves detained and potentially deported as a result of that. So beyond healthcare, this comes in everywhere. And it's also one of the elements that the Home Office is really seeking to ramp up in its process of digitizing the record of legal status in the UK. So we see this in how the Home Office isn't proposing to provide a paper physical documentation for EU um, residents who get settled status. They're just going to be sort of the guinea pigs for a new digital system with a big multi-access database that can be shared, you know, it's really unclear who it will be shared with and how consent of how different data can be shared across that database. But basically, as a way of having an enforcement tool that can help immigration enforcement to target people whenever they access any type of service or any kind of state support. So basically just forcing people out of any, you know, of the safety nets that we all rely on, of the basic services that we all rely on, and creating sort of parallel society of people who are easily abused and exploited. You know, one of the things to add to that is really, often when I speak about the hostile environment, I start kind of where Zoe is at the moment in talking about the overall impact on people and where the impetus for that comes from. And the reason we're talking about having people outside of the system and in the NHS, why we're talking about charging people for care is that many of these policies followed on from the financial crisis and then the program of austerity that came from 2010 onwards. So we've been trying to get through some of the complex details of the policy. But really, if you take a bird's eye view of it, what we have is an attempt to accelerate neoliberalism, privatization and the exclusion of people from services for profit. And if you see the NHS, just, you know, very quickly, as a, an example of that is they've created a charging regime within the NHS, whereas previously you didn't have one, which can then be rolled out. And the government have themselves said they need to create a culture change away from a culture of entitlement. So these policies being introduced to the exclude people are part and parcel, not just of someone waking up one day and feeling a bit more racist, but it's part and parcel of an economic impetus to privatize and to increase profits. So I think that's the overall of the hostile environment that we need to bear in mind. Mm, and as you say, to kind of erode any kind of collective or public belief that some services should be universal and provided, you know, for everyone in society. And that some rights should be. I mean, you know, it's also about exploitation of work and how you can blame the victims of that exploitation very easily because you can say, oh, these migrants shouldn't be here. They're undercutting wages when actually the hostile environment absolutely degrades the rights of migrants at work. It is a criminal offence to work if you cannot prove your status in this country, which means that anybody who is in that situation in this country is absolutely at the mercy of exploitation by employers. So in that way, it also feeds into this system of basically weakening everybody's position in society by degrading our rights to access decent minimum conditions at work, healthcare, housing, all of these things. Yeah, let's talk about work a bit more specifically, because, you know, as we've mentioned so far in this conversation, there's been lots of celebration of key workers, doctors, nurses, carers during lockdown. How are migrants represented in these jobs? And how do you think that that affects their ability to stay safe during COVID-19? Well, 
I mean, they are very much represented in these jobs. I think there's two sides of this as ever. I think the part that's got less attention, it's been really good to see that people have come to an understanding that a lot of key workers are migrants and that we depend on them. And that has been a good change to see during this pandemic. But I think that's sort of you know, understood at this point. I think what we lack in this country is an understanding of how much we rely on the labour of undocumented migrants. And again, because they are forced to work in unsafe and illegal conditions, they are unable to take on jobs where you need, you know, a formal contract and a bank account and so on. And so they're more likely to be working cash and hand jobs, which is obviously more likely to be among these key worker jobs that we're constantly praising. So those people are I've spoken to many from my research over the last few months and, you know, they say I was hired because my employer knew that they didn't have to pay me sick pay, that I wasn't entitled to take any holidays and that there was absolutely nothing I could do about the situation. Have people who end up getting assaulted at work or sick at work because of the unsafe conditions they're working in and then told you better not go to hospital because you're undocumented and they'll come for you, you better not report this. And we already have a problem in this country of underfunding and undervaluing of labour inspection, especially in high risk jobs like this and like seasonal work, again, where it's key work, it's vital to keep the country going. It's massively overrepresented with migrant workers. And we do not do proactive inspection. And we tie inspection instead to immigration inspection as well. So it makes it absolutely impossible for exploitative employers to be brought to justice because the migrants that they're exploiting become the victims of the enforcement instead of the employer. Hmm. So while we're on the subject of work, Akram, this week Parliament obviously passed the new immigration bill and the points-based immigration system, which we mentioned at the top. Can you talk to us about what that means? All I've heard is Australia, Australia. <laughs> well, I think there's a difficulty in this conversation and Zoe was alluding to this when we were talking about the health surcharge, which is that we discuss migrants at best in relation to what they bring or don't bring into our economy and what they contribute in, in inverted commas. You can see discourse from the 60s, 70s, 80s. They talk about numbers and the obsession with numbers, the obsession with contributions, as though people aren't contributing anything, as though the NHS wasn't established on the work of migrant workers for many decades. Now, what became apparent around the recent crisis was that so much was the NHS dependent on key workers who were migrants, that it was impossible to disguise that. The health surcharge tacitly acknowledged that, okay, it's ludicrous to invite people here and demand that they work in our NHS, completely denigrate them every time, and then charge them in order to do that. So we're going to exclude key workers who work in the NHS from paying this health surcharge. But it's kind of two steps forward, one steps back, because I mean, it's still based on, oh, because they work in the NHS, therefore, they bring something to the economy. And therefore, they're worthy migrants, whereas others are not worthy migrants. So every time we create an advocacy moment, as they call them, or a point of pressure, it gets turned into a reformulation of the same problem in slightly different terms. And I think that's where the discussion around the point spread system and who's coming and who will be permitted to come in, who will not be permitted to come in, is one of the central problems around it, is that you are not a human being if you're a migrant, unless you have some overt economic addition that you bring to the country. Or, you know, and there's this discussion around curries and culture and all sorts of other things, but that's as far as, as we get. And I think that there needs to be 
in many of the organizations and groups and politicians discussing and working on this, a slight shift of attention because the, the points-based system that's in this latest immigration bill is the logical outcome of that way of thinking and that way of talking and dehumanizing people. Mm. Zoe, what do you think the uh, new points-based immigration system is going to mean? How is that going to change things from where we are now? Well, I mean, obviously, I agree with what Akram's been saying about it. I would say it's, relatively speaking, a minor point, but the immigration bill that just passed uh, in Parliament doesn't actually say a word about a points-based system. The points-based system has been released on the back of one of Priti Patel's fag packets in a policy statement that doesn't hold any weight whatsoever. What the bill has done is given Patel the power to introduce the new system without using primary legislation and going through the process of scrutiny in Parliament. So it is very worrying because all we know about it is that, you know, there's this salary threshold and there's a vague reference to certain exemptions and different new visa routes, but nothing concrete, nothing that you can hold them to account to. And most importantly, I think, no legal, long-term, flexible pathways for people who earn under an arbitrary certain amount to come and stay in this country. And a move that very much echoes sort of a trend that we've been seeing globally to ensure that unless you are highly privileged, you know, especially in global terms, extremely well educated, extremely high earning, that you do not have any legal way of maintaining your position in this country. So there are youth mobility schemes that we have where people under the age of 30 can stay for a couple of years in the country. We have that as an exchange system with Australia, New Zealand, a couple of other countries. But there is no flexibility on that route. If you fall in love, get married, have children here, you know, you're going to have to rely on an Article 8 claim in order to remain because you do not have any chance to change your visa category and remain in the country once you've built a life here on that visa. And then there's a seasonal agricultural workers scheme, which um, I've touched upon because, you know, that's again a six month in, six month out visa system for people to work in a particular area and just simply does not contain any flexibility for the potential to stay, build a life here and develop into a person here, into a different person here as we all do change and move on in our lives. And the truth is, is that people's lives simply don't fit into these comfortable little six-month brackets. And people are worth a lot more, as Akram was saying, they're worth a lot more than what their paycheck says. And the reality is, is that there will be people here from all over the world and they will come in different ways on different visas and they will come here and they will not be able to maintain their legal status because that is what the system does beyond trying to punish people and create this brutal hostile environment for people who don't have status it systematically produces people who are unable to maintain their status who can't pay for the visa extension and the extortionate fees and the international health surcharge who need to work more than their visa category allows who fall in love and get married and want to stay on but don't have any option to renew their visa because there's no flexibility built into the system those people become undocumented those people become the exploitable underclass that we've been talking about. And it is systematic. So, And there are very few routes to get out of that situation once you've lost your status. It's extremely difficult, extremely um, expensive as well. It's just absolutely a trap that keeps reproducing itself. 
Okay. I mean, this is one of the most comprehensive conversations we've had on what this actually looks like in practice. So thank you both so much for shedding all this light. I have a couple more specific questions. One of them for you, Akram, is looking at, you know, you mentioned the no recourse to public funds issue. And obviously we know that that's something that some migrants face. And from what I've heard recently, it's not something that the government seems to even know what it is. So could you explain to us and our listeners what it is and how that impacts migrants specifically during COVID? So the no recourse to public funds NRPF is essentially an addition to a visa. So when you apply for certain visas into the UK, you are given that visa on the condition that you do not access public funds during your time here, i.e. that you are employed in a full-time job working and paying taxes. Now, as Zoe said, the, the complexity of life means that people are in and out of work. There's periods in which they need to rely on the welfare state. There's various other considerations that a humane and normal society would bear in mind once issuing visas of this kind. But it, the logic for the policy emerges from the fallacy peddled in the media and by the government that people are coming here to live off the generosity of the British welfare state. So in order to prevent that, they say that if you are coming on a certain visa, you have to say that I'm not going to take or anything from the state, uh, there'll be no recourse to using public funds. So that's been a long-standing problem, and it's arisen as an area of advocacy and work, especially around families who are made destitute, because their children, under the Children's Act, Section 17 of the Children's Act says that any child must be housed, even if their family are on no recourse to public funds. But councils essentially haven't been doing that, and they're spending a considerable amount of time hiring lawyers to refuse to house families, leading to many people being destitute, including children, for considerable periods of time. Now, this is an established practice, and the NRPF is essentially the cause of it. I mean, there's immigration officers been embedded in child services in councils across the country. So it's very clear how then, when the coronavirus hits, if you can't access any of the schemes that are available, you're likely to be suffering because you can't get the support that other people are entitled to. Now, when it was asked to Boris Johnson in one of the daily questions, he looked quite surprised, even reiterating, he said, does it mean that you can't access public funds? And I think it was Stephen Tim said, well, yes, obviously, it's in the name, as it were. Boris Johnson then promised that he would look into it and then come back and suggest you know, ways in which people might work around it. But in reply, he eventually came and said that, some individuals may be eligible for coronavirus job retention scheme funds or some of the self-employed income support scheme funds or other things. But those who don't fall into either of those two categories, which is a considerable number of people, obviously are not going to be helped. So I think it's a moment in time where throughout this crisis and the different policy areas we're talking about, there's these vulnerabilities that have been created by the hostile environment and all COVID-19 has done is bring them to the fore and exploit them and make them more apparent. Okay, so let's wrap up with just kind of a quick discussion on migrants who've been detained because of their immigration status. So I know in Spain, they emptied their immigration detention centres to prevent the spread of COVID. But from conversations I've had with folks here organising around this, we're seeing some really terrible things happen in detention centres. So Zoe, could you just give us a, a kind of quick overview of what's happened to detained migrants in the UK in this moment? Yeah, most unfortunately, our government has not followed the example set in Spain, where not only because of the risks associated with, you know, detention settings and the spread of infectious disease, but also because the government's advising against all but 
essential travel. And the Spanish government interpreted that as there's not going to be any prospect of deportations during this time. And given that the purpose of immigration detention is very clearly in order to effectuate deportations, not just as an extension of the prison system. There was no justification for keeping people in detention. Unfortunately, our government likes to pretend that there is still a justification for keeping people in detention. And so it was forced to release a large number of detainees, proving, of course, that it can be done. But there are still several hundred people who have remained in detention throughout this period. They are not given free access to hygiene materials, not even soap. Um, they have to purchase that of their own money, which, of course, is lacking. They have great difficulties in accessing legal representation. I mean, that's not new during COVID, but obviously it is of relevance because during this time, I think the charity Bail for Immigration Detainees, which um, you know does what it says on the tin, it gets Bail for Immigration Detainees, has had, a, I think, a 97% success rate in individual bail requests that it's made to get people out of detention on the basis that there's no prospect of their imminent removal and that the situation of detention is not safe for anybody in a global pandemic. So, you know, the lack of access to legal representation, one by one, these people have to be freed by the courts rather than the government, you know, doing the obviously decent thing and emptying detention centres at a time like this. Yeah, it's absolutely banging your head against a brick wall. And as I think was shown in what Akram was just saying now as well, it's all these sort of little piece by piece, okay, well, there's this way that you could get this person out, or if somebody really has an unjust situation, they can apply for bail. When 97% of bail applications are being granted, then, you know, the government, I think, has an absolute duty to instate a blanket protection policy. And they justify keeping people in detention on the grounds that some of them are foreign national offenders, which is absolutely no justification at all, because that is, as we know, a question for the criminal justice system and not for the immigration removal system, which is supposedly, you know, an administrative procedure for the purpose of removing people from the country. And that's not at all how it's used. So it's a system that's absolutely abused by the government. And we've unfortunately seen various cases of people getting sick and potentially from COVID. But of course, there isn't testing going on in detention centres. So of course, they can say there's no confirmed cases of COVID in detention centres because, you know, this is the world we live in. And as you say, I mean, it seems to be just yet another example of how these kind of things are deliberately set up to perpetuate this, you know, what's really at the core of the hostile environment, which is to create a country in which migrants are, are not welcome. I just wanted to wrap up with both of you with a really quick 30 second ender, which I know guests always love, just for listeners who are really keen to kind of take action around the hostile environment. If there was one thing that you could say, you know, here's a lesson to take from the moment around COVID-19 and migration you know, a lesson to take forward for how we might fight this, what would that be? I think that this government is one run by press release, not by policy planning. And we've seen that they've been forced onto the back foot on migration issues and other social justice issues again and again. So we more than ever, I think, have a moment where if we raise our voices and we keep that public pressure really strong, right to our MPs and so on, more than ever actually have a chance to really push them around a bit <laughs> and stand up for the people that they've been pushing around for so long. And hopefully at this moment where we're all understanding how we rely on one another uh, in this pandemic, we have a chance to win a few more concessions. Unfortunately, overturning the whole hostile environment system 
had a setback yesterday with the vote in Parliament, but we'll keep working on that, support organisations like Migrants Organised and JCWI to keep doing that, but also, you know, raise your voice because at the moment they can be pressured and we should be keeping that pressure up. Mm. Thanks, Zoe. And Akram, final thoughts? Yeah, I think that the experience we've had of the hostile environment over the past 18 or so years now and before that is that this government is very committed and previous governments have been very committed to the hostile environment policies that they're advancing. And we've increasingly focused our advocacy on narrower and narrower policy demands and areas. And what we need to somehow conceive of is a way in which we can work together across different campaigns and across different groups to make this a collective fight. And to do that, we really need to start to, and that's what COVID has inevitably done, which is connect people to the interconnectedness of everyone's lives, the fact that you can only have a healthcare system that works for everyone in the midst of a global pandemic as you could outside of a pandemic has just made it more stark. And then we really need to think about how we can go back to the grassroots, how Black Lives Matter has done more in a month on racial justice than much of the work that we've been doing as organizations for a very long period of time, and how we can make sure that we're working from the bottom up and with migrant and Bain communities at the heart of it and at the forefront of it to create a movement that could bring about the real change we need. And we really, really need significant, thoroughgoing change. If that's not a call to action, lovely listener, I don't know what is. Um, that is all we've got time for this week. Thanks so much, Zoe and Akram, for being with me. If you want to find out more about coronavirus and the hostile environment at uh, listeners, we will be hosting an F briefing on the evening of the 30th of July. So look out for that. Taking my guests one by one, Zoe Gardner, thanks so much for being with us. If people want to find out more about your work, where can they go? What should they read? Um, we've got a blog up actually on the sort of new deal for migrants that we want after COVID-19, which is on our website, jcwi.org.uk. It's right there on the front page. And obviously we're on Twitter, jcwi underscore UK. Mm-hmm. And Akram Salhab, also thank you for joining us. Um, it's been invaluable. If people want to find out more about your work, where can they go? Migrantsorganised.org. Simple ads. (laughs) Mic drop. Okay. That's it for today's weekly economics podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Neff on Twitter. The weekly economics podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe. (laughs) 